Our speaker is the Professor John Matson. Matson earned an A an AB in history from Princeton University, a JD from Harvard Law School, and a PhD in English from Columbia University. He's a professor of English and legal writing at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He previously served as a law clerk before working as a litigation attorney. Matson penned three books, earning him a Pulitzer Prize for Eden's Outcast, the story of Louisa May Alcott and her father. Madsen frequently contributes to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New England Quarterly, Streams of William James, and Leviathan. He is a former treasurer of the Melville Society. This might come to a surprise to some of you. He's a member of Louisa May Alcott Society, advisory board, and he's a fellow at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Today he will be discussing his second book, The Annotated Little Women. In this lavish edition featuring over 200 full-color illustrations, he brings uh, unprecedented vibrancy to the book, its characters, and to the Alcott family. This is where I will confess, which I did to Matson earlier, that I haven't read any of Alcott's writings. But I will begin my Alcott journey with Matson's tomb. <laughs> so I'm sure I'll enjoy it, since I did see the movie with Hepburn, Taylor, and Winona Ryder. I might as well go to the original text. I hope you'll join me in viewing the selection of the Alcott books that uh, she borrowed from the Athenaeum when she was a member in 1871. Those are the books behind me. But for now, please join with me in welcoming John Matson to the Athenaeum. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, and Carol, thank you for that very kind introduction. And my thanks to all of you for showing your appreciation of Louisa May Alcott uh, by coming out here this afternoon. Um, let's uh, uh, put Louisa up on the screen so that she can preside over us. Oh, there we go. There she is. Okay, she's a little shy, but there she is. Um, it's always a tremendous pleasure uh, for me to uh, speak in Boston in particular because, of course, this was the place where Bronson Alcott, Louise's father, was confirmed in the transformative, transfiguring life of the mind that he shared with Emerson and Thoreau and Fuller and which he passed down to his remarkable daughters. In case you're wondering, this is what Bronson Alcott had to say about your fair city. There is a city in our world upon which the light of the sun of righteousness has risen. There is a sun which beams in its full meridian splendor upon it. Its influences are quickening and invigorating the souls which dwell within it. It is the same from which every pure stream of thought and purpose and performance emanates. It is the city that is set on high. It cannot be hid. It is Boston. Well, as all cut scholars know, Bronson could get carried away. And yet it remains a fair statement that no city in America has given more to our art and culture than Bronson's city on a hill. So in a marvelous sense, I really believe that every thinking American enjoys a kind of residency in Boston, even us poor New Yorkers. 
So I'm the lucky person who gets to come here to the Boston Athenaeum and uh, speak to this wonderful gathering. Uh, but I'm more than happy to be sharing the spotlight with the Athenaeum's lovingly curated exhibit of the very books that Alcott herself handled and read here. And if you get a chance to look, you're going to find the titles utterly fascinating. I, I find this exhibit wonderful for a few reasons. And the first is to observe um, Alcott's enduring love of trashy fiction. We can see this by going to the librarian's log of the books that Alcott asked to see and contrasting them with the selections by another patron on the facing page, uh, selections made by a Mr. Charles L. Andrews. On Andrews's side, you will see Schiller's William Tell, Goethe's Faust, A Tale of Two Cities, Twain and Warner's Innocence Abroad, and indeed Alcott's Little Men. This and much more from the highly respectable Mr. Andrews. But then your eye scans over to the right, and you see titles by Trollope and Melville under Alcott's name. But not Anthony Trollope, as you might expect, not Herman Melville, as you might hope, but rather T. Adolphus Trollope's thrilling tale, The Marriage Secret, and G.J. White Melville's equally pulpy Good for Nothing, or subtitle All Downhill. Other titles include Half a Million of Money, a novel, and the immortal Mrs. A.L. Wister's uh, violently bodice-ripping, Why Did He Not Die? <laughs> it's really fascinating. It's fascinating to me because what one typically assumes about Alcott was that early in her career, she was writing pot boilers for magazines to pay the bills and keep a roof over the Alcott's heads. And then when she hits it big with Little Women, she says almost a complete farewell to that genre. And from then on, she's writing for children, all of the books that, that we've come to know and love. And yet this, um, this list of, of checkouts is, I believe, from 1872. Is that right? Okay, 71, 72. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's like a gourmet cook with a secret penchant for Twinkies and McDonald's hamburgers. Um, and, and so I, I love this exhibit for that. It shows the ongoing affection that Louisa had for, for the pulp fiction of her time. So that's, that's really a treat. Uh, I like the exhibit for other reasons, too. Um, one being that, that for a few years now, I have found myself in a phase of life when the awareness of time passing starts to become acute and powerful. Children whom one led by the hand to kindergarten approach the end of college. Old friends get a little grayer, a little thicker around the middle. Parents and mentors pass away. And one feels ever more deeply a sense of gratitude to those who have quietly resisted our foolish, impetuous love of newness by taking upon themselves the gentle, vital work of preserving those few things that we have the power to preserve, a stately building such as the one we stand in, a lock of hair, or perhaps some beautiful books. It's literally impossible, as we know, to hang on to the past. Each moment begets another and is in that instant lost to us forever. But the artifacts of the past can be made a part of our present, and when we do so, a marvelous reciprocal relation ensues. We may say that we're preserving them, but in a larger sense, they're preserving us. They're bringing us back perpetually to ourselves and reminding us of who we have been and therefore of who we are. How glorious it is to have this Athenaeum, to have these books, and for the next hour or so, to have one another. 
Um, I've had the pleasure of seeing many sites and exhibits dedicated to Miss Alcott and her family, but surprisingly, this is the first display I've seen that addresses her expressly as a reader. It's an omission that I think we should be very grateful to see remedy because it helps us to remember a key aspect of Alcott's work and mission as an author, which was to position her writing within a very broad literary context. In its deep and varied attachments to a long literary tradition, I would argue that Little Women is virtually unique among children's classics. Now, the elusiveness of Little Women began with its inspiration. Um, since early childhood, Alcott had been regaled by her father's readings from John Bunyan's famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. In her journal, at the age of only 11, Louisa recalled the book, uh, recalled the book Dear. Bronson's own youth had been interwoven with Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote in later years that it was the book that taught him the English language and that more than any other formed his character. Louisa prefaced Little Women with an adaptation of a Bunyan poem and the chapter titles with which you're probably familiar, Playing Pilgrims, Joe Meets Apollyon, Meg Goes to Vanity Fair, and others, pay homage to Bunyan's work. One of the, the small triumphs that I enjoyed when assembling the annotated Little Women's, the kind of discovery that can send a literary heart into quiet raptures, was finding a precise illustration from Bronson Alcott's own copy of Pilgrim's Progress to which one of the Little Women characters refers. In chapter 13 of part one, Beth refers to a picture in which the Shining Ones stretch out their hands to welcome Christian as he nears the end of his journey. At Houghton Library, where Bronson's copy is preserved, I was able to find the very image to which Beth almost certainly refers. And here it is. And you can see just very uh, faintly the, uh, the caption, Christian and Hopeful having uh, passed the river are received by the ministering spirits. And this illustration is going to be up for a while, actually, because I have a, a, a fair number of slides, but it, it'll be a while before I get to them. So you'll get to become very familiar with this image for, uh, for a little while. So Pilgrim's Progress. It's the trellis, um, intellectually speaking, on which the vines of little women were trained. But it was more than that. Not satisfied to have Pilgrim's Progress acting merely as an inspiration, Alcott chose to refigure the lessons of Bunyan's work, both secularizing and feminizing it for a more modern audience. As you may recall, Bunyan's narrator recounts his dream of Christian, a man tormented by presentiments of destruction who leaves his wife and children to seek the path to heaven. Christian's story is presented as a one-way journey, one in which one departs from home and never, ever looks back. In a, in a lesser-known second, separately published volume, Christian's wife, Christiana, takes the couple's four children on a similar odyssey, braving all forms of temptation and woe until they, too, arrive at salvation. On their way, they enjoy the protection of a male guide, Greatheart, who dispenses moral lessons and slays a few pesky dragons along the way. Most of the material that Alcott transposes from Pilgrim's Progress to Little Women comes from part one of Pilgrim's Progress. However, the poem that I mentioned that serves as her preface is taken from the beginning of part two. And it's from part two, the one involving the wife and the children, that she takes the principal theme of Little Women part one, the moral evolution of a mother and her four children in the absence of the family's male leader. But whereas Alcott agrees with Bunyan that life is a moral pilgrimage, 
She differs profoundly on the particulars of that journey. To begin with, in um, Pilgrim's Progress, Christiana's children are all male. Apart from a very small amount of time devoted to the youngest son, James, Bunyan shows no particular interest in developing the boys' characters. He's intent on saving their souls, not understanding them. The boys all eventually take wives, and these wives are praised, uh, in brief, for their good nature and fertility. Otherwise, we learn of them only that they, quote, did much in their place, unquote. Well, of course, it was Louisa May Alcott's conviction that a woman have not one place, but as many as she chose. In an essay she published just months before she wrote the first part of Little Women, she attacked the idea that women were suited solely for matrimony, denouncing it as, quote, a foolish prejudice, unquote. Giving anonymous examples of professional women in her own acquaintance, she argued that a woman who gave her life to, quote, philanthropy, art, literature, music, medicine, or whatever task, unquote, was absolutely as worthy as one who gave her life to a family. Unlike Bunyan, she was profoundly interested in presenting her little pilgrims as recognizable individuals, each with her own distinct talent, Meg the actress, Joe the writer, Beth the musician, Amy the aspiring artist, and each with her own specific character flaws to master and overcome. More strikingly, Alcott differed with Bunyan as to the moral significance of the physical home. To Bunyan, the home is the place that you have to leave. A person seeking salvation must not stay at home. Its comforts are perceived as dangerous seductions, spawning a satisfaction with one's sins that will necessarily lead finally to moral annihilation. Bunyan insists that the righteous person must flee the familiar. In Little Women, where moral journeys require self-discovery as well as self-purification, the physical trajectories are more complicated. Joe and Amy both seek their fortunes in the wider world, and travel is essential to them both, for May to refine herself culturally and for Joe to achieve self-reliance. But for neither of them is travel a permanent escape from home. The aim is not to evade the atmosphere of one's origins, but to acquire the virtues required to make that atmosphere more compassionate and cosmopolitan when one returns. After their travels, both Joe and Amy come back because, in Alcott's world, home and family are more reliable sources of salvation than religion itself. Interestingly enough, the March sisters in the book, although their father is a clergyman, never attend a church service. Think about that. Those, um, those notorious pagans, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, both spend more time in church than Joe March. Indeed, the ideal end toward which Alcott's narrative moves is not merely an affirmation of family, but an enlarged vision of family. We think of Plumfield, the educational utopia that Joe creates at the end of the novel, um, and I regard it as, if you will, a nuclear family gone thermonuclear. The school is described as a family of six or seven boys, and Joe declares that she imagines uh, the little academy, as she imagines the little academy, I would so like to be a mother to them. Joe later applies the exclamation point to this theme when she asserts, I do think that families are the most beautiful things in all the world. But little women's emphasis on reading, which I'm going to come back to, is a theme that extends far beyond Pilgrim's Progress. Casual readers of Little Women are likely to remember that Alcott refers to Joe early and often in the book as a bookworm. They may even recall that Joe's ideal Christmas present is a copy of the now little-known work Undine and Sintram. 
But I think that only the handful of scholars who've attempted an annotated edition of Little Women are fully aware of how fundamentally Little Women is a book among books, a book rooted in reading. Within its pages, Meg reads Sir Walter Scott, Joe paraphrases Harriet Beecher Stowe, Beth quotes Isaac Watts, and May fumbles with Greek mythology. From literary immortals like Dickens, Tennyson, Goethe, and Samuel Johnson to the rather more obscure and ephemeral talents like James Robinson Planchet, William Allen Butler, and Susanna Saint-Livre, I need to read these books someday and find out what they're about. Um, Little Women alludes to the work of more than 60 other authors. It's phenomenal for a children's book. At a glance, one is likely to find no particular purpose in many of Alcott's allusions. There seems to be no particular reason for Meg to be reading Ivanhoe, or for art-loving Amy on her European tour to take time away from her beloved galleries and cathedrals to visit Goethe's house or Schiller's statue. But taken together, all of these literary references add up to something I consider very important. We can start with the fact that the March sisters perceive themselves in a world shaped by stories. Stories for them have a purpose. They possess a logic that leads toward a goal. Living in a world that is rich in narratives, one begins to think of one's own existence as a sort of tale, replete with characters and themes, reversals of fortune, and ultimate objectives. The fact that the March sisters are immersed in narratives adds a substance to their lives that is not only intellectual, but moral. To live meaningfully, they must have stories, not only the ones that they read, but the ones that they write every day with their own thoughts and words and actions. The fact that Alcott relates Little Women to such a varied literary landscape tells us a lot about the breadth and ambition of her own reading. But it also tells us something about what, in 1868, she dared to expect from even a mostly juvenile audience. Alcott certainly didn't expect her young readers to have read all the works that receive a nod in Little Women, or even to catch every single one of the references. Nevertheless, Alcott still trusted that she could write an intensely elusive book without alienating her readership. Without apologies, Little Women both acknowledged and formed a part of a far-reaching community of the book. Its fictional world is closely tied to a very real and very rich world of letters. Now, necessarily, a book that makes so many references to fiction and to poetry communicates profoundly with a world of imagination. And yet, Little Women's relation to fantasy is also not what one expects from a children's story. Now, quite extensive is the list of heroes of juvenile fiction who find adventure and expression in worlds of alternative reality. We can start with Lewis Carroll's Alice and end with Rowling's Harry Potter, with visits along the way to Al Frank Baum's Dorothy and J.M. Barrie's Wendy Darling, and we have barely gotten started. For these characters, fantasy is not an inward construct. It is the external atmosphere in which they breathe, act, and have their being. Now, the March sisters also engage deeply with fantasy, but the crucial difference is that they do their own world building. Their fantasies emerge from them instead of from an author using her or his own imagination to create the three-dimensional space around them. The March sisters write and perform their own melodramatic plays. They spin outrageous stories for their own and their friends' amusement. They adopt fictional identities to take part in their own Dickens-inspired Pickwick Club, but they always, always distinguish imagination from reality, and the mythic world never takes over. 
Indeed, one excessively pious reviewer wondered aloud whether the March girl's moral dilemmas were too realistic. The reviewer wrote, We dislike the despiritualizing in it of Bunyan's great allegory. The fight with Apollyon is reduced to a conflict with an evil temper, and the palace beautiful and vanity fair are made to be only ordinary virtues or temptations. Evidently, this reader failed to consider uh, that evil is seldom so obliging as to take the form of a recognizable fire-breathing monster. Nor did this reader pause to reflect that Alcott's young readers were most likely to confront the devil precisely as Joe and her sisters do, in their daily impulses and commonplace failures of character. Alcott considered the real world to be the best place for learning real-life lessons, and the lessons she had to teach could not have been more important. Although the moralizing in Little Women is seldom heavy-handed, the book is very much intended as a guide to growing up, a companion to children who are wrestling with the very hard task of slowly putting away childish things. With faltering steps, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy learn both the difficulty and the sweetness of taking on grown-up responsibilities. And it should never be forgotten that Alcott was writing for an audience for whom responsibility had appeared both early and heavily. When Alcott wrote the first half of Little Women, the country had only three years earlier emerged from the Civil War. The war had done more than destroy the lives of 600,000 men. It had also left behind an incalculable number of Megs, Joes, Beths, and Amys, who, like Alcott's heroines, had to find some way of carrying on in the absence of fathers who had gone off to the war. And, of course, many of these had not been as fortunate as the marches. In 1868, numberless girls across America were still learning how to live their lives without fathers who never came home. Now, I don't have any evidence for this proposition, but I've always found it pleasant to think that Little Women was particularly addressed to these girls as an assurance that life could have direction and meaning and joy even when one's family was no longer whole. And it's worth noting that Little Women is unusual among great American novels of growing up in that it narrates a successful transition to adulthood. Appalled and overwhelmed by civilization, Huck Finn lights out for the territory. Holden Caulfield ends his story in a mental institution. But the message of Little Women, by contrast, is staunchly affirming. The March family is profoundly touched by doubt and debt and disease. War for a time splits them apart, and death overtakes one of them far too soon. But with perseverance and unfailing mutual support, the Marches do more than endure hardship. They eventually prevail over it. Even Beth, who may have been defeated by death, conquers her fear of it, and in her passing she becomes, as all could put it, well at last. Little Women teaches courage and the selfless sharing of another's burdens. It shows that the solution to one's troubles lies not in escaping to Oz or Neverland or Hogwarts, but calmly, quietly standing one's ground. It's this realism of Little Women that I want to spend the balance of my remarks discussing because as I s assembled uh, the annotated edition which is being released today, I was continually struck by the innumerable points of contact between the novel and Alcott's own lived experience. Having already written the biography of Alcott and her father, I was obviously aware of the many broad brush similarities between um, the Alcotts and the Marches. 
For instance, the fact that both the real and fictitious families had four daughters, one of whom died young from the lingering effects of scarlet fever. Pardon me for a second. I also knew about some of the clever rejiggering that Alcott had performed with some of her facts. For example, Mr. March in the novel goes off to war, and his wife rescues him from a pestilential Union Army hospital where he has fallen ill. In real life, it had been Louisa, not her father, who went to war, not as a chaplain, but as an army nurse. And it was she who fell ill at a similar hospital. And it was Bronson Alcott, not Marmy, who traveled to Washington to rescue her after she had fallen dangerously ill with typhoid pneumonia. In the novel and in reality, the episode costs Louisa slash Joe her hair. But whereas Joe sells her handsome locks to pay for Marmy's travel expenses, Louisa lost hers when her doctors commanded that it be shaved off. I had long been familiar with Alcott's own assessment of the story, which he recorded in her journal, the story meaning Little Women, quote, not a bit sensational, but simple and true, for we really lived most of it, and if it succeeds, that will be the reason of it. And yet, somehow none of this prepared me for the experience of exploring the Alcott family collections at Orchard House in Concord and discovering item after item that is actually mentioned in Alcott's novel. Now, some of these objects I expected to find, um, both during uh, the writing of Eden's Outcast and since, I had been to Orchard House countless times, and I had seen on display such treasures as Anna Alcott's marriage license, okay, corresponding with the marriage of uh, Meg and John Brooke in the novel, the small keyboard where Lizzie Alcott had entertained the family, this little uh, melodeon that sits at the base of the stairs, underneath the one portrait that we have of, uh, of, of Lizzie Alcott. That's the only known um, image of her that, uh, that exists. And also the bolster pillow that Louisa, like Joe, used as a signal to fend off interruptions when she was writing. That's there. Now, do you know the code as far as the bolster pillow is concerned? Anybody? Ah, I see someone nodding. Do you want to, do you want to tell? Okay, so pretty darn good. What's the significance when the, when the pillow is uh, on end like that? Um, when it was upright, uh, Joe was supposed to be in a good mood, and when it was thrown down, she was in bed. Exactly right. If it, it was sort of like a toll gate, basically. If it's up, that means you can come talk with her. But apparently what Louisa did was she sort of wandered around the house when she was writing, and so she would sometimes come down to the parlor and be writing there, and if the, if the bolster pillow was down, that meant she was in the middle of an inspiration and you interrupted her absolutely at your peril. Uh, but if it was up, it was meant that she was sort of just you know, doodling around and it was okay to, uh, to, to interrupt her. Um, I knew as well that, uh, that Orchard House still had the dress in which Anna Alcott was married and I'd been promised the opportunity to photograph that for my volume, and there it is uh, laid out actually on, uh, on Louisa's uh, sleigh bed upstairs at Orchard House. Um, so I knew that I was going to find some things, but th I decided to get my hopes all the way up. And so as I prepared for my visit to the collection in support of the, the book that's coming out today, I went methodically through the text of Little Women, taking note of more or less every household item mentioned. I didn't have great hopes of finding even a fraction of the things that I'd marked, but after all, you never knew. And indeed, I had no idea. 
Chapter 10 of Part 1 mentions that the March sisters, when they convened a meeting of their Pickwick Club, tied badges around their heads to represent the Dickens characters they were imitating. And there, in the Alcott uh, collections, lo and behold, were three of the four original uh, badges. They're photographed here front and back. Okay. Um, Chapter 17 alludes to Joe's use of arsenicum, which was a homeopathic medicine. Amazingly, Alcott's own kit of homeopathic remedies was in the house collection, and there it is. The chapter that records the passing of Beth in part two speaks of her sewing until her illness makes her, ne or makes her needle too heavy for her to lift. And this is a true um, uh, detail from the Alcott family story as well. Uh, Louisa records in her journal that, uh, that Lizzie eventually sets aside her needle because she actually cannot lift it anymore. Uh, and indeed, lo and behold, Lizzie's sewing kit. Um, what a treasure trove. This is so fantastic. You know, did, did, and, and some of these things they didn't, uh, they weren't even quite sure that they had. But anyway, so anyway, on, um, on, the, uh, on the inside of the lid, there's actually an inscription that doesn't really come up very clearly here, but it's, uh, but it's within that area that I'm circling with, uh, with the, the laser light. Uh, and it says, to Elizabeth from her father, 24 June 1856, which was Lizzie's birthday. It would have been her 21st birthday. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Walpole, New Hampshire. Um, give you the next slide. Um, Louise's sewing kit and her pincushion also turned up. The parade of wonders continued. Mrs. Alcott's chess set mentioned in Chapter 7 with a few of the original pieces. I was hoping there would be enough to actually set up a chess problem, but unfortunately that all that you see in the foreground was, was I think, uh, the, the extent of, of what remained, but still uh, a pretty amazing find. And then a fancy dress fan, just right for illustrating Meg's more metaphorical trip to Vanity Fair. An entire wooden chest filled with costumes and props from the Alcott's um, uh, home theatricals. This is often actually on display at the house, usually up in, uh, in, uh, in May Alcott's bedroom. But you can see there uh, very clearly a, you know, a dagger, a pair of boots, very dashing and debonair, the, uh, the, the um, umbrella. It's just extraordinary to see these things still extant. Part 2, Chapter 3 tells of Amy's ill-fated attempt to make a plaster cast of her foot. Ta-da! The plaster cast of the foot! My goodness, it really happened! Um, the collections um, so contain the, the successful result of the same experiment, as well as a, a sketch done with a hot poker on the underside of a breadboard. There we have that. It's a little faint there, but you can see the young man leaning on his hand, staring at you. Um, also mentioned in the text of Little Women. My search also yielded up relics of the most personal kind. Two locks of hair, the first from Lizzie Alcott, there's that one, I'll come back to it, and a lock of Louise's own hair. What better to illustrate um, Joe sacrificing her hair so that Marmy could go to Washington than an actual lock of the hair. You can just imagine it, it's really tremendous. Um, so I'll go back for a second to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Lizzie's 
lock of hair, if I may, because personal effects of Lizzie Alcott are really pretty scarce. And so a lock of her hair uh, is something akin to a piece of the true cross. It also comes along with, I don't know how well you can read it, a note from Lizzie herself, which reads, Dearest Father, in absence of a richer gift, will you take this very humble one, believing much love accompanying it, your Lizzie. Um, so, yeah, we, we love this stuff. Then, after a variety of other finds, came what was for me the most significant discovery of all, one that the Orchard House people did not even know that they had. I found it in the bottom of a cardboard box whose contents were described in detail except for one object that had merely been notated as, and I quote, one other item. That item was a copy of the New Testament, its title page signed by Bronson Alcott, and its flyleaf bearing the inscription to Abbey from Lizzie's Library, July 1858. Now, this was a few months after uh, Lizzie had passed away, and so this um, copy of the New Testament is being passed down from Lizzie into the hands of her, uh, of her younger sister. And... Um, Here's why it matters. For quite some, as a matter of Alcott scholarship, for quite some time, scholars have argued about the identity of the books that Marmee gives to the girls on Christmas in the second uh, chapter of Little Women. They are described only as, quote, that beautiful old story of the best life ever lived, a true guidebook for any pilgrim going on a long journey, unquote. The first half of the line argues for the New Testament, the second half making a case for Pilgrim's Progress. Now, admittedly, the volume I discovered does not match the book precisely described in Little Women in every detail. Beth's book in the novel has a dove-colored binding. The one in the Alcott collections is green. The original inscription is from Bronson, not from the real-life Marmee. And there's no indication of its having been a Christmas present. But the book exists, and no analogous copy of Pilgrim's Progress inscribed by an Alcott parent for an Alcott daughter has been unearthed to my knowledge anywhere. And until one is, it would seem that New Testament faction of the debate has the firm upper hand. Now that I had seen the extraordinary richness of the Alcott collections and their fascinating relatedness to the text of Little Women itself, marvelous possibilities for the annotated volume began to unfold in my mind. I saw that it might be possible to create in print a kind of 360-degree experience of what it was like to live in Louisa May Alcott's world. I could bring Little Women to life in a way that we would be impossible for almost any other children's classic. If you want the real silver shoes from The Wizard of Oz, you ain't going to find them. They don't exist. Okay? Or uh, ruby slippers, as Hollywood uh, converted them into. Um, but I could do this. I could create a, a sort of you know, real-life... Um, an uh, analogy to Little Women precisely because Alcott's work was so deeply grounded in actual family stories and in real surviving artifacts. The book that W.W. W. Norton and I would create would invoke Alcott's historical moment in every possible way, not just with the familiar pictures of the Alcotts of their friends and a few period illustrations and so on as other annotators had done, but with a deeper examination of Alcott's own sensory experience of life. Did Amy March savor the forbidden pleasure of pickled limes at Mr. Davis's school? Very well, we would find and use a period recipe for pickled limes. 
was all could specific about the flower worn by a character at a party. Then by all means, we would discover the symbolic meaning of that bloom in the 19th century language of flowers, and we would make it known. If the, if the grown-up Amy writes from Europe that she had been impressed by a particular canvas or a particular stage tragedian, we would produce that painting and find a photograph of the admired actor. Indeed, the chapters where Amy tours Europe were to be particularly fun to research and illustrate. Even the smallest details yielded unlooked-for riches in the form of highly unexpected facts. Um, Amy comments, for instance, on seeing the Empress of France uh, and on the very poor taste of her purple dress. Don't we wish we had color photography? I found out that the Empress of France's purple dress had a very particular story and that the Empress was not wearing it in a mere attempt to be fashionable. It turned out that in the late 1850s, a French chemist created a specific fuchsia-colored dye and wanted some way to make his discovery a means of honoring the Emperor Napoleon III. Now, unlike Napoleon I, Napoleon III was a man of rather few military victories. But it so happened that he had won a battle in 1859 in northern Italy near the town of, does anybody happen to know this, Magenta. And he named the color magenta after the battle. The chemist named his shade magenta. The Empress Eugenie, or Eugenie, I should say, was so pleased that she adopted the hue as a favorite color and wore a magenta dress to state occasions. My volume also includes, improbably, a photograph of Emma, the Dowager Empress of Hawaii. Why in the world? Little women, Hawaii, how does this make sense? Overcome by the loss of her husband, King Kamehameha IV, Emma had traveled to England in 1865 to commiserate with another champion mourner of the era, Queen Victoria, who was still lamenting the death of Prince Albert. After her sojourn at the English court, Queen Emma made her way to the south of France to pass away part of the winter of 1866. And there, remarkably, she crossed paths with Louisa May Alcott, who had been touring Western Europe as the paid companion of a wealthy invalid. Hence, Alcott's description of the Promenade des Anglais in Nice in Part 2, Chapter 14, quote, free and easy Americans saunter here criticizing the latest celebrity, the Queen of the Sandwich Islands. You cannot make this stuff up. When one is assembling an illustrated volume, it seldom hurts if the author's sister uh, it was a talented artist. May Alcott, the model for Amy March, enjoyed a brief but notable career in Europe as a painter. In fact, uh, Victorian England's foremost art critic, John Ruskin, is said to have averred that no artist was a better copyist of the canvases of J.M.W. Turner. And what you're seeing here is not a Turner, but actually a copy made by the, the very talented May Alcott. As a young woman, May decorated the walls of her room at Orchard House with drawings of Greek figures. She also supplied a quartet of illustrations for the first edition of Little Women, Part One, of which... This is an example. This is the scene, by the way, where uh, Amy or May 
Amy is about to uh, fall through the ice and then is rescued by Laurie as, as a consequence of, of Joe's foul temper. If you've read it, you know what I'm uh, talking about. Um, not surprisingly, my volume makes extensive use of May Alcott's handiwork, not only the figures from her room, but also a fine oil painting of a barn owl that graces Louise's bedchamber at uh, Orchard House. Isn't that nice? Isn't, it, she really did have something. Um, also, a watercolor that, that May did of her apartment near Paris. She, uh, she moved to Paris late in her life. She even wrote a book about how to support oneself as, as a starving artist in Paris. And she fell in love with and married a Swiss uh, businessman named Ernst Niereicher, who is sitting there in the chair uh, in, in their parlor in their um, rather beautiful and lavishly decorated apartment on the outskirts of Paris. And then finally, um, as an example of, uh, of May's artwork, a canvas that was chosen for display at the Paris Salon of 1879, a poignant anti-slavery portrait that she titled La Negresse. I was also able to contribute a handful of illustrations that I own myself. In a very small way, I'm a collector of historic signatures, and I've acquired over the years an autographed poem in the hand of Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, which reads, Well and wisely said the Greek, Be thou faithful but not fond, To the altar's foot thy fellow seek, The furies wait beyond, R. Waldo Emerson. Um, and also a canceled check signed by England's erstwhile poet laureate, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Okay. Um, since Emerson was Bronson Alcott's dearest friend, and because Louisa alludes to Maud, the long poem of Tennyson in the pages of Little Women, I was delighted to include both of those documents in the annotated edition. But the item from my collection that really fit most beautifully was a gift from my sister a few years ago. Uh, she had tracked down an autographed sentiment by Bronson Alcott, exhorting the recipient to, if you can read it, follow the highest. Now, wonderfully, when Joe in the book is fretting over the direction that her writing career will take, will she serve art or, or be a commercial sellout, Mr. March advises her, aim at the highest and never mind the money. Aim at the highest, follow the highest, bang, like that. Um, again, the link between the novel and real life was virtually perfect, and I was delighted to add Bronson's slip of paper to the volume. For a couple of the illustrations, a spirit of whimsy crept in. Uh, late in the novel, Alcott refers to the old apocryphal story of George Washington told by Parson Weems, the story of the boy Washington and the cherry tree. Well, well after the deaths of all of the Alcott family, as you may well know, the folk artist Grant Wood of American Gothic fame executed a satirical painting of the Washington legend. The painting has nothing whatsoever to do with Little Women. Nevertheless, it is so richly funny that I couldn't resist including it, so in it went. Um, oh, by the way, as far as illustrations go, if you are ever trying to illustrate an edition of Little Women, beware of the Norman Rockwell family. Uh, Norman Rockwell did three paintings of Joe in the, uh, in, for, uh, I believe, the Ladies Home Companion, I could be wrong about that, in the, in the 1930s. And, uh, and they're beautiful, but to have them in the book, I had to pay the Rockwells $750 an image, which is extortion uh, where, where images like that are concerned. So just be aware that the Thanksgiving is coming up. You have that famous painting that Norman Rockwell did, Freedom from Want, 
Well, his children take that sentiment very seriously. <laughs> so, so then it came down to deciding on the image to put on the last page of the text. And that decision, fortunately, practically made itself. Because also in the Orchard House collections are a few pieces of Louisa May Alcott correspondence, one of which has the charming closing, Very Truly Your Friend, L.M. Alcott. I knew that I wanted to end the text that way, as if the entire book had been a letter written to the reader in a spirit of cordiality and companionship. The only problem was that when we tried inserting Alcott's autograph on the last page by itself, it looked orphaned and unsubstantial. My editor asked if I could think of another treatment. The one that finally occurred to me involved an illustration that Frank T. Merrill had created for an 1880 edition of the book. We had used Merrill's excellent pen and ink drawings throughout the volume, and now is the perfect time to add just one more. It's a picture of Joe wearing her writing cap for inspiration and bent over a writing desk. It looks very much as if she might be putting the finishing touches on a letter. We gave Norton's art department both the drawing and the signature, and we turned them loose. And that's what they came up with for the, uh, for the last page illustration. Very truly your friend, L.M. Alcott. Now, in concluding, in, in concluding rather, I'd, I'd like to say that in creating this edition, I have tried to make the most comprehensive, immersive experience in the worlds of Louisa May Alcott and Little Women that I could possibly achieve. A writer, of course, always knows that his creation is flawed, and anyone who's written a book knows that those flaws will rise up in the least anticipated places. When I wrote Little Women, I went up to Concord to get a sense of the flora and fauna so I could talk about the birds and the trees. I got to Concord, and I saw cardinals flitting back and forth in the trees. I thought, oh, great, cardinals, great detail for the book. I'll put it in. After Eden's Outcast came out, I received an email from an irate ornithologist who said, you are a fraud, sir, something like that. Cardinals did not come to Concord until the 20th century. How dare you? And, um, and so I wrote back and said, oh, very sorry, sir. Thank you for telling me. And what can you do? We fixed it for the, uh, for the, for the paperback. But if you have both the, uh, the hardcover and the paperback, you really should buy every possible you know, iteration of this book as you can. Uh, you'll see that, that the reference to cardinals is excised in the, in the paperback. So I have tried very hard to eliminate all misplaced cardinals from the annotated Little Women, but I suspect that someone will find some latent recalcitrant red feathers somewhere and will present them to me as red flags. But no one will be ever able to gainsay that I made my attempt with the utmost love and with the deepest gratitude for having had the opportunity. And speaking of opportunities, it's been a lovely chance to speak with all of you today. <laughs>